as quickly as these meetings begin, they end. And uh, as the person who's been preaching, I'm feeling a little fatigued this evening as we near the end of this time together, rounding the sixth sermon in this series. But at the same time, uh, what a revival and a period of refreshing this week has been for my family and for me. And so thank you for that. I'd be remiss if I didn't begin this evening by noting how warm and welcoming Lehman Avenue congregation is. And that means so very much. Sometimes you walk into a church building and you can sense that maybe there's some unrest. There's some folks who don't really like each other among them. You kind of get out your proverbial knife and cut a hole through the tension, you know, so you can see through everything that's going on. That's not the case here. And what a blessing it's been to be among you. Uh, We're so grateful for the invitation to come extended by the eldership. I told you earlier, we appreciate so much Brother Neal and Brother Hiram. It's been great to get to talk with David a little more as well and get to know him a little bit. You guys have the dream team in terms of ministerial staff, and uh, I'm thankful that they are here. You know, the church has been meeting together ever since A.D. 33 or so in Acts chapter 2. And if you read that carefully in Acts 2 near the end of the chapter, their meetings together and their eatings together almost always coincided. And I tell you, we've been doing some eating this week. Now, we all ate together on Sunday afternoon, and that was a special treat. And then uh, it has been a blessing for my family and for me to get to go out to eat each evening uh, with some of you, and that has meant so much as well. Brother Tom Evans has been an encourager of mine for some 15, make that 25 years. Uh, He's known me since I was 10 through the great Diana singing. If you ever have an opportunity to head down to Diana, Tennessee for the Diana singing, the second Friday and Saturday of June and September, I think you ought to take that opportunity. Even better if you can go and camp and help them get everything ready leading up to that time. I grew up about 15 minutes from the singing, and it was my privilege to get to attend. And now that we're back in Tennessee, I can attend with more regularity than I could from South Carolina. And Brother Tom has been there all along. He heard me preach my first gospel meeting. (laughs) And uh, you want to talk about long-suffering. Well, the people people at Diana were long-suffering, and they have continued to be and... uh, Uh, It's been a special treat to get to be with him this week as well. All right. What about the second coming? The New Testament assures us that Jesus is coming. I go to prepare a place for you, Jesus said. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. John 14, verse 3. The writer of Hebrews, after he says, it's appointed unto man once to die, and after this the judgment, Hebrews 9, 27, he says this in verse 28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Isn't that interesting? 
Jesus is going to come, and, and the writer of Hebrews is under the impression that when he comes again, it will be the second time that he comes. Listen, we've got friends and neighbors who believe something different about this. Some folks coming out of a dispensationalist background perhaps have this notion that Jesus may come, but it may be invisible to us. You ever seen the bumper stickers, in case of the rapture, this vehicle will be left unattended, right? Something like that. I don't mean to be unkind to anybody, and I don't hate anybody, but that's just not biblically accurate. And in fact, the writer of Hebrews would beg to disagree. He says Jesus is going to come again, and when he comes again, that will be the second time, Hebrews 9.28. And when he comes the second time, it will not be for the purpose of dealing with sin, that is, what he did for us on the cross, about which we've spoken at length throughout our time together this week, but instead it will be to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Quite often when we talk about a topic like this one, it can instill within the hearts of the hearers fear, dread, sort of a sinking feeling. And I think sometimes that's what some people think preachers are trying to go for when we preach sermons like this. Isn't it interesting how the songs that we sing contrast with that? And Lord, haste the day when faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trumps shall resound and the Lord shall descend. And it is well with my soul. Paul says, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. And in that sense, we can, with hearty amen, sing the song which we just joined voices and hearts to sing together. That Jesus is coming soon. And you know, near the end of scripture, Revelation 22, he says, even so, come Lord Jesus. The perspective of the biblical writers, and best I can tell the Christians of the first century, is that they were longing for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord. They were looking forward to that time, and yet for whatever reason, it's something that maybe we barely think about. Maybe it was something that they prayed about. Lord, will you come? How long, Lord, until you come? Put an end to all of this that we're experiencing in this life. But when we talk about it, we often mean it from a different perspective. The writer of Hebrews says in 928, he will come to deal with sin and save those who are eagerly waiting for him. The biblical perspective when it comes to the second coming is that we cannot wait for Jesus to come and take us home. And so this evening, it is not my intention to manipulate your emotions. I'm not trying to get somebody to, to force them down the aisle this evening in a decision that perhaps you are not prepared to make. That's not the point tonight. And if you come away from this meeting this evening feeling uneasy or feeling fearful about the day of the Lord, I want you to know that is not me playing with your emotions. That is your conscience telling you that something is amiss in your spiritual life. That something's not right between you and the Lord. I'm not trying to tug at your heartstrings tonight. But what I do want to do is to consider the reality of the second coming and as best as I can to piece together a bunch of passages of Scripture to try and give us a sequential view of what that day will be like. We sing, what a day that will be. Let's try and get in our minds sequentially what is going to happen. 
And so because of that, we're going to be doing things a little differently than what I've done them so far. I've got my tablet here because I'm going to rely a little more on my notes to make sure that I stay on task. And I'm going to do something that really I don't like to do when it comes to PowerPoint. And that is I'm going to put verses of scripture on the screen. But that because we have so much to cover this evening. Usually I want you to open in your Bible and I want you to see it for yourself. But if we're going to get out of here before midnight, and trust me, I'm committed to that. Then I think we need to put them on the screen, okay? If you're a note taker, it might be helpful just to jot down the citations, the book, chapter, and verse. And that way maybe that will give you something uh, when you get home if you want to review this. We're going to review the second coming, and I want you to try and put yourself there on that day. You know, the Lord could come, I suppose, at any moment. Could have been this morning. It could be before we pillow our heads tonight. Could be tomorrow. It could be a thousand years from now, right? That day and hour knows no one. So consider it with me in four scenes. Scene number one. It's a normal day. It's a normal day, just like today. Where are you on a normal day? What, what, what have you been doing? What, what's on the to-do list? Uh, we've been talking. I had an opportunity to talk with that side of the auditorium before uh, our service began this evening. How's your day been? Well, yeah. Wednesdays are hard. Wednesdays hard for you? I don't know. Something about Wednesdays are hard for me. It's like everything's working against you. And so you finally get here and you sit in your spine. <sighs> you can exhale a little bit, right? It's the middle of the week, hump day. We're trying to jump the shark so we can sail on, coast down to Friday. What have you been doing today? Eating, sleeping, working, getting ready, talking to somebody, posting something you ate on Facebook, you know, serving somebody, weeping with somebody, going to visit someone in their affliction. According to Jesus, this is exactly the kind of day on which he could return. That is to say, it's just a normal day. That's it. In Luke 17, 26 and 27, he says, Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. The point that the Lord is making by hearkening back to the example of the flood is that it was just a normal day. And on the day when the Lord returns, it will just be a normal day. Scene number one, it's just a normal day. But scene number two, suddenly, there's a loud sound that startles you to attention. The sound is so loud that you immediately look to the sky, peering out a window, stopping your vehicle, halting phone conversations, text messages, stopping work, whatever you were doing, because you're trying to figure out what that sound was. Of course, you don't have very long to try and analyze the situation, because 1 Corinthians 15.52 says it's all going to happen in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, looking up, you see an unmistakable figure. You've never seen Jesus, not, not in the flesh, not, not with your own eyes. You've seen him through the eye of faith. You've seen him in scripture. But as you look up, you can tell. I, I know exactly who that is in the clouds. Matthew 25 says that every eye will see the Son of Man in his glory. And notice, Jesus doesn't come invisibly like some of our friends and neighbors may teach. 
Instead, the Bible teaches that he will come and he will be in all of his glory. Revelation 1 verse 7 says he's coming with clouds and every eye sees him. This isn't secret. In Acts chapter 1 verses 9 through 11, when the apostles are standing there, minus Judas, but the 11 are standing there and Jesus has given them sort of the final instructions. And the Bible says that he began his ascension to heaven. And the clouds, he got, he got so high in the sky, the clouds took him out of their sight. They couldn't see him anymore. And, and the apostles are standing there gazing into heaven. In my mind, their mouths are open, you know. And the angels come. Why are you standing gazing into heaven? Don't, didn't he tell you to go and do something? And you need to know that when he comes, he's going to come in like manner. Just as you saw him go, so he will visibly return. As we'll see in just a moment, he'll come in the clouds. Matthew 25, verse 31, says that all the holy angels will be with him. In 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 7, the text says that when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven, he will come with his mighty angels. Notice again, the Lord will be revealed. This isn't a secret thing. This isn't something that's only for a select few. This is something that everyone will see. It's a sound that begins that everyone will hear. And with him are the souls of the faithful dead. 1 Thessalonians 4.14 says that Jesus will have with him those who sleep in Jesus. What are all these different individuals and beings doing that we've observed? All right, we've got Jesus in the clouds. We've got his holy angels with him. What's happening? And for that matter, what about, let's say that we're alive at the time that he comes. I don't know that, he will be, that we will be or won't be, but let's just say that we are. What's going to happen to those who are alive? On that day, in that moment, let's look at the scripture. The angels will immediately begin separating. Matthew 13, 41, the Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom, out of his kingdom, all causes of sin and lawbreakers. In the parable of the tares, we have this view of the angels coming and separating even those who might at times have claimed to be Christians. They, they were associating with these individuals, but they weren't really committed to Jesus. And they're separated from the saved. The departed, pause, the angels will be separating. What about New Testament Christians, the faithful dead who have come with Jesus? What are they doing well, the departed souls are going to begin resurrecting. They're going to start rising. 1 Thessalonians 4.14 begins this way. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by word of the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. All right, just put yourself there. For, just try to imagine what this moment is going to be like. You've heard this trumpet sound. It's an unmistakable trumpet. Have you ever been in a situation, just let's be real for a minute, where you thought you heard the sound of the trumpet? 
Sometimes I've heard a sound I couldn't identify, and I'm looking around. Is this it? And then I think, no, it's been too long. We would have already started changing by now. Paul says in a moment, right? You ever heard a sound like that? This will be an unmistakable sound, the voice of an archangel, the sound of the trumpet of God, Jesus appearing in the clouds, and then the righteous dead rising. The people who are alive when the Lord comes will begin to change. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 to 54, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall all be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. According to Revelation 1.7, again, we read that in the meantime, the Lord will be waiting. He's coming. Coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, but he isn't waiting long. Because the faithful dead upon their resurrection rise to meet him in the air. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 The dead in Christ will rise first. And then the next verse, Then we who are alive and remain at the time of his coming, together with them, will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. So the faithful who are alive having been changed, are likewise caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. I think other passages of Scripture further tell us that it's not just the faithful who are going to be raised. The dead in Christ rise first, and they go to be with the Lord. And then those who are faithful to the Lord at the time of his coming, who are alive, will rise to meet them. And at some point in all of this, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, our bodies, mortal, will put on immortality. The perishable will put on imperishable. We'll receive these bodies in which we can exist in a spiritual realm that is no longer the physical realm that we know here. But when I turn to a passage like 2 Corinthians 5.10, Paul says that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he's done in the body, whether good or evil. It's not just Christians. It's not just church folks who rise to meet the Lord. Jesus in John 5, 28 and 29 says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Not all who are in the tombs. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life. Those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment, the English Standard says. And best I can tell, it is at this point that the earth is destroyed. At least... The existence as we know it. Some folks want to have a debate about this particular issue. I'm going to tell you, I'm kind of a simple person. I'm from, you know, southern middle Tennessee. All right. 
I don't really care where heaven is as long as I get there. What makes heaven heaven is the fact that that's where God is. All right, I want to be with him. I want to be with Jesus. Sidebar, why do you want to go to heaven? Paul in Colossians 3 says, set your mind on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. If I'm interpreting Colossians 3 correctly, what Paul is saying is the reason, number one reason why I want to go to heaven is because that's where Jesus is. That's where my Savior is. I long to be with him. I long to see him. And while I long for sweet reunion with individuals who have preceded me in death, and while I'm interested to meet some of the faithful heroes of Scripture, no one compares to being there in the presence of Jesus. You know, when Jesus' best friend on earth, John, saw Jesus in his resurrected glory in Revelation chapter 1, he says he fell down like a dead man. What are you and I going to do when we see him? Everybody's going to rise. And then the earth will be destroyed. Here's what 2 Peter chapter 3 has to say of this. The heavens will pass away with a great noise. The heavens will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it are burned up. All this seems to be signaled by the great noise, 2 Peter 3, verse 10. And then in the next verse, we read that nothing in terms of this physical life is really going to last. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be uh, in lives of holiness and godliness? Here's the point. Okay, if it doesn't pass the fire test, if it's not something that's going to get through to the other side... That's not to say that it's not important while we're here, right? If a man won't work, neither should he eat. He's denied the faith. He's worse than an infidel, Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 5. Is it important to make sure that I've got food on the table, that I've got some money by which I can provide? Absolutely it is. We're not saying that it isn't. But my primary focus is on the things that are going to last we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that we will receive what is due to us based on what we've done in our bodies, whether good or bad. It's the decisions that I've made. It's the allegiances that I've formed. It's my dedication to Jesus that is going to make or break what happens on that day, the day of the second coming. That's the kind of stuff that passes the fire test. That's the kind of stuff that gets all the way through. Is my soul secure in Jesus? All right, so stop a minute. Where are you in this scene? There's this sound. There's the Savior. Here are these angelic beings that are with him, and then, and then the dead in Christ start rising first. And at some point in all of this, there's a great resurrection of every human being who has ever lived to the judgment bar, whether good or evil. When you hear that sound, what's going to be the first thing that went through your that goes through your mind? Yes, this is it, finally. Or, oh no. I thought I had more time. Where are you in this scene? Scene number three. We come to the judgment bar. 
The picture, as it's drawn for us or painted for us in Scripture, is somewhat like a courtroom scene. We read about the Lord, the righteous judge, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8, who sits on his great white throne, Revelation 20, verse 11. And everybody who's ever lived is gathered. Again, 2 Corinthians 5, 10, that everyone, each one, may receive what is due. For what he's done, whether it's good or evil. Romans 14 verse 12 says that each of us shall give an account of himself to God. Hebrews 4:13. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Peter in 1 Peter 4 verses 3 through 5 says the time is pa- for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, and so on. But with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. That is to say, now that you're a Christian, there are some people that are surprised that you don't run with them like you used to. You're not involved in the same stuff that you used to do with them because now you know that those things aren't appropriate for Christian behavior anymore. Those things are sinful. But he says this at the end of the verse. They will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Isn't that interesting? It's not that he's still getting ready to judge us. That's that's not the reason why he has not yet come. Peter said in 1 Peter 4 in the first century that the judge is ready. He's ready right now to judge the living and the dead. Wonder why he's delayed his coming. 2 Peter 3, 9. I don't have it on the screen. I'm kind of off my notes right now, but that's okay. 2 Peter, go to preaching. This is what happens, right? The Lord is not slack concerning his promises, as some men count slackness or slowness. It's not that God's forgotten about the promise that he made to send Jesus again to to bring Christians home. No, he's long-suffering toward us. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Why? Why are we permitted to sit here right now? Why were we given this day? And if we're given tomorrow, why are we given tomorrow? Because the Lord is long-suffering. Because the Lord doesn't want any to perish. And if my soul is secure in Jesus, as we discussed last evening, then perhaps the reason why I'm still here is so I can help another soul to come to know Jesus and His grace and the salvation that is possible in and only Him, in Him. The judgment. On that day, we're told that books will be opened. Revelation 20 Verse 12, the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. It seems to be a book of each person's life that is open and the deeds that are recorded there. We see why it's even more important because of this book of the deeds of individuals' lives, why it is so important that we could be forgiven by the blood of Jesus, that our slate can be wiped clean. Their sins and their iniquities I will remember no more. They're blotted out of the book of remembrance. Jesus says in John 12, 48, The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken, the same will judge him on the last day. See, the good news is, 
this is kind of like an open book test. We know what's coming up on, if you will, the final exam. I don't mean to be trite. We know the standard by which we're going to be judged. It's not that we're going to get there before the judgment seat of Christ and be surprised that maybe the standard is higher than we expected it to be. Or, as some want to hypothesize, that maybe the standard will be lower than we expected it to be. No, Jesus says it himself. The word that I have spoken, the same will judge him in the last day. This is the reason why those who compare themselves with themselves are not wise, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10:12, Because I cannot legislate my own spirituality based on what you do. Nor can you do that based on what I do. You know, some people say, well, the preacher does that. It's good enough for me. The preacher's not the standard. See, that's the problem. We will all be judged by what Jesus says, the word that I have spoken. The books are opened. There's another book that's there, according to Revelation 20, 15, and it's the Lamb's Book of Life. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This book of life comes up periodically throughout Scripture. As I can tell, when I become a Christian, like Shelby did last night, my name is written there. Sometimes we sing, my name is in the book of life. Oh, bless the name of Jesus. Rise above all doubt and strife and read my title clear. I know my name is there. But if my name isn't there, according to this verse, lake of fire. As each individual appears before the judgment seat of Christ, he or she is is examined based on whether he or she is in the Lamb's book of life. And deeds and words and thoughts are judged to see how they match with Scripture. I think sometimes when we think about Judgment Day, we picture a court scene, maybe deliberation, and and the judge is trying to figure out what to do. That's really not the sense here. The, The term is like a sentencing day, really, more than a judgment day. It's not that when I get there, I don't really know what's going to take place. I'm not saying some people aren't going to be surprised, right? Jesus says there will be some who will be surprised on that day. More on that in a little bit. But... If I have been living my life to the best of my ability in uh, conjunction with what it is that Scripture teaches, submitting to God out of reverence for Him and because of the glory of God and the grace of God, then the Bible says that I can come in prayer boldly before God. And John says in 1 John that I don't have to worry about Judgment Day because the blood of Jesus has cleansed my soul. We talked about it last night. I'm not standing there on my own merit. I'm standing there in Jesus. I'm in him. And therefore I belong. It's humbling to think about, isn't it? On that day there's a separation. Jesus puts it this way. On the right hand and the left hand of the judge. In Matthew 25, 32 and 33. Before him will be gathered all the nations. Everybody. And he will separate people, one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he'll place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Or would y'all prefer me to do it this way? The sheep on his right and the goats on his right. And then finally the pronouncement is made. Verse 34 of Matthew 25. The king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for 
you from the foundation of the world. See what I mean when I said I belong? It's prepared for me. Not by virtue of my own merit, but what Jesus has done. But down in verse 41, he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for, look at this, not prepared for you, prepared for the devil and his angels. He said, God doesn't want us to be a part of that number of the folks who are on the left. God doesn't want you to be lost forever. He does not want to send you to hell. I think sometimes there are individuals that get the impression that preachers enjoy preaching hellfire and brimstone. And while I will never apologize for what the Bible teaches, I will never be someone who rejoices when someone else is eternally condemned. Nor will I place myself in the position of the judge. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus puts it this way. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Did you hear that? This is Jesus talking, all right? This isn't Robert talking. This is Jesus talking. There are people who will claim Jesus as Lord, at least in word. They will say Lord to Jesus, but they will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Is that shocking to you? What do you mean by that, Jesus? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Ah, okay, now it's making sense. Here are people who at least in word or whatever, but in words, they've, they've said one thing, but it seems as though they've lived in a different way. And so they, in their shock and surprise, in verse 22 will appear appealed to Jesus and on that day he says many will say to me Lord Lord did we not prophesy in your name did we not cast out demons in your name did we not do many mighty works in your name and I'll declare to them I never knew you your name's not in the book you didn't submit to me in obedience depart from me you workers of lawlessness Scene number three is the judgment bar. And I've got to ask you, I, I, I don't need anybody to answer out loud, of course. This is just for you. This is between you and God. Where are you in that scene? Sheep or goats? Right or left? Enter in or depart from me? Heaven or hell? Where are you? Isn't that why these passages of Scripture are in the Bible? So that we can look at these and we can think, take assessment personally. Where am I? What am I doing here? Scene number four. That's eternity. <laughs> eternity. The righteous are invited into heaven. It's a prepared place for God's faithful people. It's a place of rest. Revelation 14, 13, it's a place where tears are wiped away, where death and pain and sorrow are no more. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 4. In fact, John even says in Revelation 21 that there's no more sea. And it's of interest to me that the sea is what separated John from his loved ones as he's been exiled on the Isle of Patmos as he writes the revelation given by these visions and at the command of Jesus himself. There's no more separation over there. It's a prepared place that is wonderful. 
What makes heaven heaven is the fact that that's where God is. It's a place of eternal life, Matthew 25, 46. The unrighteous are banished to hell. A prepared place for the devil and his angels. It's a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, Matthew 25, verse 30. It's a place of punishment, Matthew 25, 46. It's the place where those who reject God and his word are sentenced to dwell forever. In fact, just as heaven is described as eternal life, eternal life, so hell is described as a place of everlasting fire, Matthew 18 and Matthew 25. A place of everlasting destruction, 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 9. A place of eternal judgment, Hebrews 6, 2. Where are you in this scene? The Bible teaches that the day of the second coming will be the last day, the very last day. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says in 23 and 24, then comes the end. And I mean, it is the end. It's the end of time. It's the end of Christ's reign over his kingdom, if I'm interpreting 1 Corinthians 15 correctly, because it says, then comes the end when Jesus delivers the kingdom to God the Father. And then Jesus places himself then in subjection under God the Father that God may be all and in all. I'm not sure I understand every aspect of what all that means. But I see Jesus finishing the work even the portion of his heavenly ministry in which he is engaged right now as he is at the right hand of God, ever living to make intercession for us, as he is our advocate, as he is the one through whom we pray. It's the end of all mortality, according to 1 Corinthians 15, 42 to 47. Everybody's going to be changed. This mortal has to put on immortality this perishable has to put on imperishability. I mean, uh, this temporal has to put on that which is eternal. And for you and me, the judgment day will either be our greatest victory or our greatest tra tragedy. 1 Corinthians 15, 57, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is what it's all about. Let's hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all, Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 13. There's nothing more important than this. Paul says, the time of my departure is at hand, 2 Timothy 4. He knew, I think he knew that he was near death. I fought a good fight, finished the race, I've kept the faith. And henceforth there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. And not to me only, but to all them also who love his appearing. The crown of righteousness that Paul described wasn't just for him. He says it's for you too. If you love his appearing, if you follow him. But that day could be our greatest tragedy.
What a shame for the Son of God to literally leave heaven and come to earth to seek you, to die on the cross to save you, and then for you to be eternally lost on Judgment Day. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 2, verse 1, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord. It was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by the gift of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. How shall we escape if we neglect this? In fact, this is the only way. Through Jesus, submission to his will. He says, I am the way, the truth, The life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Back in the day, people used to say, give me the man but not the plan. And I think, you know, maybe why we don't hear that very much anymore, people still believe that, right? They're like, I'm going to focus on the red letters. I'm going to focus on Jesus. But see, when Jesus came, he came, yes, to die on the cross. But in dying on the cross, he purchased his people that he calls the church, Acts 20, 28. We talked about this in Sunday Bible class this week. And in Acts 2.47, it says, The Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. All the saved people are saved through Jesus and in Jesus. And all of the saved people are in his church. When it comes to Judgment Day, we need to realize that it's not a matter of whether Jesus is ready to judge, but whether we are ready to be judged. And the fact that he delays his coming, even now, is due to his mercy, his patience, his long-suffering. He doesn't want anybody to perish. So as we consider that day, the second coming, let's think about another day. And that day is today. What do we, what do you, what do I need to do today to ensure that I'm ready for that day. Are you ready? Are you ready for that day to come? I told you this evening that the the purpose was not to manipulate emotions. It is not to try and force you into making a decision that you're not prepared to make, but it is designed to get us to really think about that day when that day comes And as we've gone through these four scenes that I think the Bible outlines in Scripture, it starts with just a normal day. And and isn't this what you would probably be doing on a normal Wednesday night? At least a good portion of us in this room, we'd probably be here. You probably would have done the things that you've been doing all day today. Listen, I don't know. Is it going to be later today or is it going to be 100 years from now or what? I don't know. But I know I need to be ready. I know I need to be ready. Not just out of fear, could today be the day? No. But because responding to Jesus unlocks a meaning of life, a joy, even in this life, that is unmatched. Are you prepared to meet him tonight? Are you following him? 
What do you need to do today to prepare for that day? Boy, if we can help you, we would love nothing more. It's it's not a position of, well, let me help you because I'm so much better than you. No, it's a matter of, let's go to God's word. Let's see what God's word says about how we can be ready for that day. After all, Jesus says, this is the book that we're going to be judged by when that day comes. That was not the sound, right? (laughs) It'll be way louder than that, I'm pretty sure. Are you ready? If you're ready this evening to put on Christ in baptism, we're ready to assist you. We're ready to welcome you into God's family. We're ready to rejoice with you. If you have questions about that and you want to know more, we're ready to sit down and study with you. We want you to know why you're doing what you're doing. We want you to know and feel confident in the decisions that you're making because the Bible gives us that kind of confidence. If you've wandered away as a Christian and you're not ready for that day, That day is more of a day of dread for you than a day of joy and a day of anticipation. Then let's do something about that tonight. Don't leave here dreading the coming of the Lord, but instead let's look forward to He's your Savior. He loves you. Come to Him. Come forward if you need while we stand and sing together.